Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. We bid a fond farewell in this episode to our founding producer, Scott Pennington, who is leaving Matrix at Michigan State University. Uh, without Scott's hard work and good humor and uh, skills, uh, this podcast would never have gotten off the ground, let alone this far. So thank you, Scott. And we welcome our new producer, Annette Janino, who is going to be taking charge. I would also like to welcome back from his research travels, Peter Lim, who in the meantime managed to bring home the Michigan State Distinguished Faculty Award in 2012. Congratulations, Peter. This is a very, very prestigious award, and I should note that the university mentioned our podcast in the official news release about your award, so we're very proud of uh, your accomplishments uh, on the research front and building the Africana uh, Library at Michigan State in one of the top collections in the country, and the fact that the podcast is getting recognition beyond our little world of Africanists. Well, thank you, Peter, and it's something to warm the heart as I travel back from the Southern Hemisphere to the chilly Northern Hemisphere. special guest today is Richard Werbner, Emeritus Professor in African Anthropology, an Honorary Research Professor in Visual Anthropology at the University of Manchester. Uh, among his many books are Ritual Passage, Sacred Journey from 1989, Postcolonial Identities in Africa, Memory of the Postcolony, 96 and 98, The Fascinating Reasonable Radicals and Citizenship in Botswana in 2004, and Tears of the Dead, The Social Biography of an African Family of 1991, which received the Talbot Prize of the Royal Anthropological Institute. Professor Werbner is also an accomplished ethnographic filmmaker and has made three films on well-being, occult consultation and charismatic faith healing in Botswana, Seance Reflections with Richard Werbner, Shade Seekers and the Mick, and Encountering Aloy. His very latest book and film is called Holy Hustlers, Schism and Prophecy, Apostolic Reformation in Botswana, published by the University of California Press 2011, with, of course, and with his great flair for film, an accompanying DVD. Professor Werbner has been conducting extensive fieldwork in Southern Africa since 1960. Welcome, Richard Werbner. Thank you very much. Uh, yesterday you gave the inaugural Michigan State University African Studies Center lecture in the Graduate Student Scholar Exchange Series on the fascinating topic of from Freud's couch and the wisdom diviner via Egypt to wisdom's lots. And we were surrounded by your images from Freud's clinical chamber, including baboon sculptures and Egyptian artifacts. And you made some really startling comparisons between, the, between Freud, the ver venerable founder of psychoanalysis, and African wisdom diviners. And there's much here to ponder from using uh, diviner wisdom to understand modern psychoanalysis to the sort of discourses and, and, and emotions uh, that arise from these practices. So I was just wondering if you could outline briefly uh, the main points of your argument for the listeners and what have these got in common? Freud's psychoanalysis is often understood to be a talking cure where 
uh, an analyst sits beside a patient, then listens to the patient who has an opportunity to free associate. In response to that, the clinician begins to enable the patient to reach beyond uh, the resistance to, to depths and hidden meanings. I hope to make it clear that Freud himself in his practice was not a Freudian as some of his followers have been in that he tried to reach all the senses of his patients from smell to touch to a feeling of being cusseted and enveloped in something that would move them from their own condition through a birth to a rebirth as if they were going through a death. And so that what I tried to do to start with was to show the actual setting in which Freud practiced in Vienna, the technology, the methods that he used. And in approaching this, I had in mind what diviners do when they too are trying to plumb hidden depths. For both, the deep assumption is that there's something elusive, hard to grasp, that one has to reach in order to deal with the predicaments of everyday life. And for those listeners who haven't uh, met a diviner, what are diviners? Uh, diviners are mediators who help people to reach an understanding of their uh, immediate predicaments, afflictions, suffering. Many diviners of the kind that I'm talking about use small objects that are thrown down, let fall on the ground, and produce a display of some kind. Uh, for example, they may have uh, bones, uh, pieces of uh, organic matter, they may have shelves, and they may have souvenirs they've collected from their own experience. And when these are cast, they form something like a tableau. tableau. It's a display of forces for or against a person, and each one of these objects personifies some agency that might be good or bad relative to the person. So what one is seeing is a dramatic display on a miniature scale of forces in a person's life. And so too, what had not been appreciated about Freud was that he brought sculpture, that he was very, very concerned with figurative art but not of any kind, the art that would reach back to archaic times, especially to Egypt. He especially wanted to reach to the time when the uh, knowledge seemed to be of how you moved from this life to another life, a deep connection to ancestrality. His concern, like a diviner's concern, was with the great chain of being reaching the personal life and the group life at the same time. So a basic assumption that Freud made about the world of his patient was that the individual's life and the group life are in deep harmony. If there's a disturbance in the person, it's a disturbance that has occurred in archaic history. And so too, the diviner is addressing moral disturbances that may be in the life of a person to bring these to the fore so that the person can then come to terms with the wrath of the dead or to, 
terms with obligations that are not recognized and are the source of the person's affliction. And you've been observing African diviners for some time now, as in Swapong in Botswana, in, in Zimbabwe. And these diviners, like Freud, were great collectors. As you mentioned, the shells and bones, and I think another one that is popular with them is bottles of precious seawater, or even seductive substances like incense. And Freud, had, I understand, had his own sort of tactile and, and other substances that he used. I was wondering, listening to you yesterday, how these actual small objects, as you call them, and their use by the diviners might have changed over time. I was thinking, for instance, in the, uh, the growth over time in the popularity of soccer, of football in, in um, Central Africa, and muti, or magic for winning matches or for general fortune must have risen in importance over time as one example of changes with urbanization, modernity, cosmopolitanism. So I'm wondering in a way how over time, you've been in the field since 1960 uh, in Zimbabwe, how this choice of small things or the, uh, the, the discourses around these human problems and these problems of being and these these physical objects which are, are used perhaps to, to put the, the client at ease, how these things might have changed or have they been more, more stable over time? I think there has been change uh, when one looks at the whole range of possible consultations. There are consultations now with those who are Christians and look to inspiration from the Holy Spirit and make rather little use of objects, although uh, when they're treating, they may bring holy water from a great distance. They may rely on all kinds of candles and objects that are manufactured, which they then bring to bear, having had a prescription that they reach through inspiration from the Spirit. But what is remarkable about wisdom diviners is the great continuity and the flexibility, the adaptability of the things that they've received from the past. I, I had the good fortune to receive the field notes of Isaac Shapira, the great founder of anthropology in Botswana. He worked in Muchudi in southern Botswana, and in the 1930s, he observed a number of diviners who very kindly cooperated with him to explain how they divined and gave him a great wealth of praise poetry. And this poetry is full of imagery, definite styles and ambiguities that are cultivated in a, in a very distinctive way. Now, I found when I came to start research in Botswana, among diviners in the 1970s, that again that praise poetry along with the things had remarkable continuity. There were variations on a theme, there were alterations, there were inventions that were uh, distinctive to specific diviners, but overall with the motifs, the stylistics, the aesthetics, great continuity. And then in 2001, uh, and later on in 2005, when I worked with great depth uh, with uh, one divine in particular, I found that he was 
could be compared to the opera singer who's a great jazz performer as well and who can sing pop, but who doesn't, when singing pop, start to perform an opera. He had the capacity to separate and bring to bear during a performance each one of these genres without mixing them. And I think that this is an evidence of how great resilience there is in these forms. They're brilliant in their capacity to image aspects of life. And so a person hearing this poetry can have an awareness as if he was confronting, if I may make, mix the metaphor, an iceberg, which we don't have in southern Africa, but something that has a tip and a very great depth. And anyone who is not an expert encountering it will reach a bit and get a fragmentary knowledge, but an awareness that in all this ambiguity and obscurity is some hidden revelation. And it's a great capacity of this type of divination at once to conceal and reveal. Now, if I pursue the comparison to Freud, constantly one gets the sense that his interpretive methods were about revelation and concealing, so much so that one of the great philosophers who uh, studied Freud has used the expression, forgive me if it's a little bit gobbledygook, hermeneutics of suspicion. It's an attempt to see reality as having appearances and then something beyond the reality. And this method of uncovering, of excavating, of going deeper and deeper, that is the parallel with the diviner. With Freud, the idea was that one was reaching into the interior of the person deeper and deeper. Uh, with the diviner, deeper and deeper into the social relations and the social situation. But sometimes, in the course of that, reaching into the interior. I want to shift a little bit and bring in your uh, films and, and documentaries into the discussion. How do you use film to complement your written work? Is it helpful in getting at these layers of knowledge, uh, these ambiguities? Is it uh, important and, and to what extent visualizing these diviners at work and how they interact in their own communities? And, and what is it about documentary filmmaking, in other words, that scholarly books and journal articles cannot do? I want to say that in the case of my most recent book, which is about charismatic young men who are healers and interpreters of suffering, I, I began with making the documentary first. And that taught me a great deal because, as you know, when you're working to make a film, you keep spinning back and forth and seeing these images, and they begin to live in your mind in a way that is beyond what it was when you were there present and you uh, start to worry about the skin of the film, the touch of it, how it grabs you. And, and I, in the course of working on this film, uh, found that I had to have a different approach in the writing. So the making of the film very much re revised the extent to which in writing, I brought more and more imagery into the book. So it isn't as if these are separate, but they're in a dynamic or, if I may say so, a dialectical relationship with one another if you get an impetus, especially from the film, to the book. 
Now, in the case that uh, I'm now working on, a book on divination, I, some years ago, made two films, one called Seance Reflections with Richard Werbner, a second called um, Shade Seekers and The Mixer. And these two films center on the same healer. They also have a couple who are patients and they reappear in the two films in different ways. But it's from those films that I'm now working the book again. And I, it's a very long time that I have been studying this kind of divination. So I published some things which, as I was writing them, I was aware that there's a poetry with a richness of pictorial imagery that I was only skirting the surface of in writing about. What's more, when I dealt with the readers, I found that they would read what I said, the analysis, my interpretations, but the poetry, which to me was what it was all about, largely escaped them. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't read it, or if they read it, it didn't seem to reach them. And then I began thinking that there should be some other way of presenting this, and that led me to filmmaking. But I also have to say that if it weren't for my daughter, I probably wouldn't have got into this because she and my wife began playing with one of these user-friendly cameras and uh, laughing at me for not wanting to get into it because I'd found with other cameras that it was a huge bother in the field. Uh, but then uh, I thought, oh, let's play with this thing. And it drew me in, and uh, the Granada Center for Visual Anthropology at Manchester, which I believe is the best in Britain, if not one of the very best in the world, uh, has the facilities. And my colleague Paul Henley, who founded this center, uh, took me in along with the students. And I gradually, through editing, learned how to film, how to shoot, what to do. And I've found that um, it, it enables one in the field to also have an entry of a kind different from what one has uh, without the camera. You would think that this is something to put people off or to create a distance or a barrier, but I think the opposite is the case. That's what I was going to get to next, and that is how did your interviewees, how did your informants, if you want to use anthropological language, uh, see the films? What was their role in the production? Did they hold the cameras? Did they uh, record each other? or, or what was their role in the film? How did they relate to it? Well, from the very start, I thought that I had to enable the, the people that I was filming uh, to see themselves with me, and then we could have a conversation around it. So uh, an early method that I used was a method of co-viewing. I filmed uh, the sessions with the diviner and the patients, and then they came to the University of Botswana and sat with me in front of a monitor and I then filmed them and engaged with them in conversation about it on the basis that I for some months had sat with the diviner unpacking the sessions getting him to explain the metaphors teaching me what his procedure was so in one way uh, I was at an advantage and they who have been the patients and know the language and their own experience were in a kind of disadvantage, so much so that one of my former students, now a very pompous professor like me, he 
said on seeing the film that, ah, Dick, you're leading the witness. But I was leading the witness with the script that had been given to me by the diviner. And uh, we then interact around that. Now, I, I think that the co-viewing method runs through all my films very productively. I constantly show them back. And then, most recently, I've made a series of films where I show the films to different audiences, including audiences in Botswana and including the subjects of the films, to see them as completed wholes and to film them watching it. And then, with the help of some other filmmakers, myself to be filmed, or at times I've had to manage the camera and uh, interpose myself in it, uh, in order to get the reception as an element in the, the film. And uh, I, I'm of the opinion that it produces some very surprising results, because sometimes people are very politically correct, and they tell you, oh, no, you shouldn't have done this. And it turns out that, on the contrary, the people who are in the audience from the country have the view that they're even more of the view that you should have done it. So uh, I, I think it's a very good thing now to have as part of filmmaking the reception films as a resource and also exposing, perhaps one could say, one's Achilles heels. It's very useful wisdom. I think also for researchers, consider the fact that they should draw the people and communities that they interview and, and use for their research into their work much more and, and, and to share their material with uh, the people before it gets interpreted and translated and, and put into books and articles. But the, sort of building on this, on this idea just a little bit, isn't there a danger also of exoticizing Africans uh, in this kind of work. And there's a long, long history, of course, of, of complicity on the part of anthropologists uh, in Africa uh, in this kind of process, and specifically focusing on things like magic and witchcraft and divination and sort of, you know, exoticizing uh, the, the, uh, the African people. How do you deal with that critique, which I'm sure has been thrown at you at different times? Well, the fun of it is, is that I throw that critique out myself in that um, uh, I, I am of the view that there's been a rise and fall of a certain primitivism, or a, what you're using the word exotic, I would revise that word a little bit, but uh, a kind of primitivizing in African studies. So for a very long time when uh, decolonization was about, uh, very few Africanists of any reputation would dare uh, to talk about uh, the gory aspects, uh, body parts and child murders and things of that. Very few did. Uh, and it is only since the mid-90s with a very great wave of disenchantment in African studies about what has happened in Africa, the failure of states and so on, and uh, the rise of an Afro-pessimism that we've heard again the voice that resounds so deeply in Conrad, Miss Accordsy dead, Miss Accordsy dead, and has come up again in uh, T.S. Eliot's poems about uh, something primitive in the heart of Africa that is there. Only now has that risen again, and it has risen uh, because of that, the sense that 
one has to be critical. One has to have a certain stance of looking at failure as well as something else. Now, I place myself in the line of the Afro-optimists. That's my attitude, or some say my agenda. And uh, I am not keen to abandon uh, the wisdom and the gifts and the insight into the archaic, indeed, the insight into the exotic. On the other hand, I don't think that one needs to see this as something that distances us, because I start from the assumption that the other is a part of oneself, not that the other is out there. But I think that this is the assumption that Freud had as well, that one has to know oneself as another. And that's why he pursued the Egyptian in himself with his sculpture. That's why he constantly was trying to deal with the archaic. And I think that the great continuity of the divination is because the ancestrality in the archaic does reach us all. We all are worrying about our great chain of being, and that is a great power in it. And I wonder if I could bring this back to the public sphere. And your earlier mention of Mochudi in Botswana reminded me how Neil Parsons once took me up on top of the hill there and looked down on the, on the town and visited the Khotla, the local council, and I started to wonder how these diviners would actually fit in the public sphere, physically or even politically. And in an earlier and equally fascinating book on, called Reasonable Radicals and Citizenship in Botswana, you analyze the identities and politics of the Kalunga people of Botswana, and you use this frame of public anthropology on making voice and agency in the public sphere. And I, I notice in that book you also mention your first visit to the Kalunga, this time in Zimbabwe in 1960, when Max Gluckman, your teacher at Manchester, recommended you keep your ears open but your mouth shut. Uh, <laughs> I failed terribly. Th those, of course, were difficult <laughs> times. And like our previous African Studies Centre director here, uh, David Wiley, you were declared a prohibited person uh, by the Rhodesian white supremacists. Now, in your more recent work on these holy hustlers and on Freud and the diviners, you're deeply involved in studying these elusive matters like emotion and dreams. And I wonder how these others, these Pentecostal diviners, holy hustlers, how they fit into the public sphere. Are they perhaps a little like the Kalunga in Botswana and Zimbabwe, uh, enterprising but marginalized people? And, and how do those who eschew the word, the logos, for the feeling, for the occult uh, and the dream, how do they fit into this more public sphere of politics? And for that matter, how does the public anthropologists grapple with them. I think grapple was a term you used uh, yesterday to, uh, to grasp how to, uh, better than interpretation in terms of Freud's uh, view of dreams. Could I separate two streams? Uh, one stream uh, has to do with the young charismatics uh, who are the subject of holy hustlers. And another stream has to do with the wisdom diviners who were there before them and are still there alongside them. Indeed, there's something of a competitive or rivalrous relationship. Now, at one time, wisdom diviners were great advisors to uh, chiefs and political figures. 
And we have the experience in Southern Africa that um, uh, the command of the public sphere has not remained with such diviners the way it was in the past. By comparison to West Africa, where the knowledgeable ones around the great system of divination of Ifa and, and the ones who have these rich texts, they have spread their influence in the public sphere across the diaspora to Cuba, to the United States, and uh, their literature and their books have come out and their poetry is extolled and they, uh, you get a sense that they are a great presence for the intelligentsia. They're a significant public factor. And it is a remarkable thing that would take me more time you're going to give me to try and understand how it is that wisdom diviners have been so marginalized to the extent that in the oral literature studies that have been made, and you were an expert on this, about to publish a book on it, there's scant reference with the exception of one work by an anthropologist, uh, David Copeland, on the connection between the wisdom poetry, the praise poetry, and the popular poetry that grew up and then is very much in the public sphere. So there's been a, an amazing marginalizing in Southern Africa of the literary, the oral literary accomplishment of the wisdom diviners. Now when we turn to the uh, holy hustlers, to the charismatics, uh, they on the whole are working in a separate, not so much the main public sphere, but the sphere that is there in their own churches and in their platforms that come when they emerge in a public exorcism. Then they catch the public attention. And there has been uh, reports in the newspapers, uh, some television reporting that has made them controversial. And now, just very recently, one of these prophets has set about with a studio in South Africa to make one of these gospel films, and not his gospel, but a, an apostolic film of his own, and trying to sell it as a fundraising thing. And it's all singing and bringing groups together and having a, a rather tribal, uh, invented tradition background, if I can use that uh, now antiquated phrase of Terence Rangers. But not that he's antiquated, just the phrase. What has happened is that there's a movement in these churches to begin to grab a bit of the public area, as if you looked in the Congo, where the churches have found command of the media, or in the West Africa, there's a great deal of what's being called mediation, the, the access to the media. This is only beginning for these churches now. What is important is that they do reach a very diverse congregation, people across the sectors who often come rather secretively if they are, let's say, in the civil service or in any way recognizable. They, they don't always want to be known as going to a faith healer, so they, they do it surreptitiously and privately if they can. And the main congregation of this apostolic church first called Eloy, and then a schismatic a branch called uh, Cornelius. Uh, the main congregation is drawn from it's a relatively uh, stable working class who have incomes and are not on the edge of complete poverty. And they are the mainstay of the church. But they don't have 
figures coming. It has become a thing that the government reaches out to these churches. The government has been very concerned, the government of Botswana, about the extent to which church leaders come and start to rip off people, make money and get rich. And so you found ministers touring around and addressing congregations. It's the government reaching to the church rather than the church having got to media in a, in a major way. Ah, well, it's Freud, wisdom diviners, and holy hustlers. It's all literally the stuff of dreams. Uh, Professor Richard Werbner, thank you so very much for talking to Africa, past and present. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.